deadline for you, yeah? Yes. Yeah. yeah. The field report is due. And then there's some stuff happening on Wednesday. And then my goal is to open exam two at 8 a.m. on Thursday of next week. And it stays open until 3 p.m. on Monday. And the reason it closes at 3 p.m. on Monday is that that is the end of our scheduled final exam period for the class. It's something scheduled by the registrar's office. So we are required to be complete as of 3 p.m. on that day, which means that we will be required also to file final grades by close of business on Wednesday. So in between now and Wednesday, uh, now and the end of classes, it would be helpful to us if you guys would, would double check your grades records and other things like that with the following provisos 
Uh, one is that I still haven't uploaded your extra credits post spring break, but I'm going to totally do that and I'll send a note out when it's done. Um, anything else in there that looks funny? We want to be able to research it and fix it well before final grades are due to the registrar because we want our final grades to be accurate. Um, so we are counting on you to help us with that. Uh, you should see, if you go to the quizzes area, both quiz 7 and quiz 8. And if you don't see them, you need to let us know, because it means there's something missing in your record. Okay? Um, any questions about the schedule so far? And you are clicking in on your start of class poll with any number. Any number will be fine. No questions about the schedule. I have to change our schedule a smidge. It does not affect in class anything. It affects my office hours. So, Cleo is very sweet. Um, Wednesday afternoons, the last two Wednesdays of the semester, I am stepping in for a colleague who has become seriously ill so that we can finish the class. So I will be teaching the class Wednesdays from 2 to 2.50. That's normally our office hours on Wednesdays. I'm going to shift our office hours back to 3 to 3.50. Uh, and you are welcome to come if that fits into your schedule. And as always, if it doesn't, please let me know so that we can schedule an appointment together. The sooner you ask for any appointments, the better. So from here on out, particularly between now and Friday, I anticipate that both I and your section instructors, if you guys are doing this right, will be quite busy in office hours helping you go through field reports and making sure everything is in order. If you want to secure time outside of office hours for us to help you with a field report, we absolutely want to do that. Our availability is going to fill up quickly. So it would be beneficial to set up those appointments soon. Even if you don't know yet exactly what you need, if you want us to set aside some time for you, let us know. By default, at least with respect to my appointments, if students are setting up appointments with me to go over field reports, I am going to, all else being equal, Invite multiple students to those appointments so we can go through things together. That's a way to accommodate more people. If you need time to discuss private things, tell me that. And then I won't make it a group session. I'll make it. I'll set aside time just for you. Okay? I would assume the same thing would be wise with section instructors. If you want to attend somebody's office hour who's not in your who's not your own section instructor or you would like to work with Emily, that's great. You probably should go ahead and contact them and let them know to expect you, though. Um, if a section instructor changes a time or location of office hours, their obligation is to announce that change to their classes, but not necessarily to the whole group. So if somebody knows that you're planning on showing up, dropping in during office hours, and they change a location, you might not know. 
So it's good to plan, it's good to notify, and we, we want to work with you. We'll, we'll need your help scheduling all this in. You guys are busy, right? Yeah. Us too. So let me just go through what you're doing for Field Report in case you have forgotten. Because we're at the fair over the weekend and it baked your brain um, or something. I didn't get to go. Sad. I always like to go and pet that sheep. Um, so you have drafted the relevant sections of your Field Report by submitting all your field notebooks. We give you a new outline in which you're going to arrange that material. We want you to fix the sections that you already wrote, and then we want you to put those into this new outline. Then we want you to make an overall introduction and conclusion. Write some nice transitions so that it seems like it's one paper instead of four papers all stapled together. You'll have one reference sheet. It should contain everything. Um, there's an appendix of words. So you can use your first 10 words table to start off your appendix of words. Remember, we need you to just tell us whole words. You don't need to give us all your affixes, okay? But whole words, anything that can appear as a monomorphemic word or that's a root or stem that you use in your other words. Yes, Chris? So that includes the words you used for the sentences and all that? It includes the words you used for the sentences and all that. Okay, this is actually uh, really, really helpful for us when you're grading, but I think it might be really, really helpful for you. We want your phonemic inventory, for example, to be the same throughout your field report. So when you're putting together your appendix of words, you'll be able to see if there were places where you used a sound in there that you later took out, or you made syllable structure changes. <laughs> This helps you to see in one place that you're being consistent across all the sections of your report. Okay? Excellent. You'll submit the whole thing as a PDF to the field report Dropbox before the start of your session, before the start of your section, before the start of your session. Please, the start of your session. Even though I know the Dropbox says open till 11.59 p.m. The reason for that is that unfortunately, this time of year, uncountable students will have minor collisions or things that delay them a few minutes. They notify us of an emergency, we let you submit your work based on that emergency a little bit later. This way, we don't have to reopen drop boxes and take longer for you to accommodate last minute documented emergencies. But the till, till midnight isn't, so everybody can take till midnight to submit. Okay? Okay. Questions or concerns? Can't wait to see what you put together. You guys should know that one of your number participated in an undergraduate poster session research presentation on Friday, in which she made a poster of her language to share with linguist graduate students and faculty. And it was awesome. And I'm not going to embarrass her because she looks embarrassed. But after the session, we had a little collection of graduate students and faculty back at the building going, evaluating posters, saying whose was the best, who was, who's supposed to work. And people were arguing about whether yours was best. 
or one of the others. There was there was a competition, but this was out of a first semester freshman, second semester freshman class, one of the best posters in the room. Really nice. So you should be proud of this. When you're done with it, I hope you will keep it. You can write stories in it. You can, I don't know, get people to speak it. It's very good. Okay. Last time we met, you will recall, you didn't listen to me and that was pleasant. Pleasant for all of us. What are the things I hope you got out of that program that we listened to? <coughs> One thing was, there was, a, there was a man who was discussed at the first part of the program. You remember Ildefonso? So what would you say is important about his story? What do we learn about language from Ildefonso? Yes. That he didn't have language, and when like, that language was a thing, he understood the world. So at the beginning of the story, at the beginning of his life, he didn't, he didn't have language. And by that, what we mean is that he didn't use any variety of language and he also didn't know that he was not participating in language, right? So he didn't have any awareness that this thing, language existed. And when he figured it out, the light bulb went on and many other things seemed to happen. So important to think about Il Defonso as an example. It's really hard to come up with, with ways to understand what it would be like to have a human brain, but not language. So, and even with Ildefonso, it's hard to understand what that would be like, right? But it's one of the few examples we can, we can look at that starts to give us a hint of what that might be like. Do you remember there was a study about things being left of the blue wall? So what, somebody in this section, what was important about that left of the blue wall study? What did it show? Yes, sir. It showed combination of different objects into a coherent thought. Yeah, it showed how you combine different concepts into a coherent thought using the structures that language gives you. In particular, compositionality. <coughs> Rats have it, I mean, don't have it, sorry. Little infants until they're how old? For this particular set of concepts, about six years old is when kids master this linguistically and the task. What about adults? Human adults can do it unless, unless you take away their conscious language ability by making them do something else linguistically, and then they start acting like babies and rats. Right? It's very interesting, very suggestive. We had the Nicaraguan Sign Language example. So that's a way we can look at how human languages begin, right? Because we had a community of people who started out without, without a shared language, and they made one. So what do you remember about the, some of the differences between the first generation Nicaraguan sign and the second generation? I'm going to go for somebody on this side. What happened in later generations that wasn't there before? Yeah? Their, uh, their signing got more subtle and less 
Their signing got more subtle. It went into a smaller space. It was based more just on the hands instead of whole body movements. Really importantly, it was not, it went from something more like mimicry to something more abstract, less like mimicry. And then there was a certain set of vocabulary items that the, the later generations had that the earlier generations didn't have. What were those vocabulary items about? They were so later generations were using language more abstractly. And they could refer to different kinds of thinking, mental states. Like they developed a more elaborate vocabulary for mental states. By the way, as far as I know, every naturally occurring human language yet documented has ways of making rich vocabulary for different kinds of mental states. Seems like something we do as humans. Um, so we've got some suggestive evidence there that maybe that's one of the ways that humans become better at understanding each other's mental states. True or false? Signed languages, they're true languages. They are primarily about mimicry. You should be able to shout it out in a loud, clear voice confidence. False. Sign languages are not charades. They are equally abstract as spoken languages and equally variable as spoken languages. Excellent. So if you were able to sort of feel like you could discuss those things based on that program you got out of the, the lecture, what I was hoping for. Um, today, our topic is language variation. And I need to, I need you to get your clickers ready, so let me close the start of class poll. 99. Oh, okay. And just refresh your brains about some key terms. So these are terms we're going to use today and Wednesday that we introduced at the beginning of the semester. Do you remember discussions about the difference between languages and dialects? Yeah? Okay, so if you call two different varieties different languages, what does that mean? Does it mean that they're not mutually intelligible? Not necessarily, right? It means that they're different from each other along political, economic, and social lines. Is that what you were going to say? So the difference between language and dialect is not a linguistic difference. It's a social difference. Um, linguists all use the word language as though we know what we mean by it. <laughs> um, and we have a, a, a more generic term that we sometimes use if we want to say, talk about languages and dialects and other things, and that's variety, right? A variety is a way of using language. A regional dialect? What's that? Go ahead, Richard. It's a variety of a language that that tells the listeners where you're from. It's associated with a particular place, right? Are there regional dialects of American English? Yes. Yes. We are going to explore some of them today. Good. Sociolect, do you remember that term? 
anybody here a fan? I'm so unhip. I'm sorry. A fan of hip hop music? There is a way of using language that's associated with sort of urban identity, used in, I know, used in hip hop, used in rap music, right? That, is that variety really associated with a geographic location? What's it associated with? It's sort of a cultural or social group, right? I associate that variety with youth. Young people, you young people can do that. I, I associate it with urban identities, not rural ones. Although, that's sort of a stereotypical association, right? You can go anywhere in the US and find kids on the farm who can rap. We think can rap. <laughs> it's a way of adopting an urban identity for people. Um, I associate it with um, ethnic identities of color. Not every person of color uses it, right? There are Anglo people who use it too, but for some reason it's associated with ethnic identities of color. For that reason, this variety is sometimes referred to in the literature as African American Vernacular English. African American Vernacular English. It's super interesting and highly rule-governed, highly grammatical, right? But the grammar is different than the grammar of the variety I'm speaking right now. So that's a sociolect. The variety I'm speaking right now probably includes some regional dialect varieties, properties, right? I don't know if you can tell where I'm from from how I talk, but you might be able to tell that I'm not from Brooklyn, or Boston, or um, a Charleston, right? Yeah. So I mean, I have a I have a regional variety that's associated with the American West. I have the, I'm using a sociolect with you guys that's associated with higher education. Good. We can have also individual idiosyncrasies to how we speak. And if we're talking about a variety of speech that's unique to an individual, we can call that an idiolect. And, and that means we're not claiming that it's got any social group associated with it at all. It's just related to one individual. If you are a creative writer, you need to master idiolects, right, to make your characters sound like real people. Okay, excellent. So we should now be very comfortable with the idea that we should never refer to the English language. Because, in fact, there's lots of them. I shall call them Englishes. And I want to focus on, besides that very cute lamb, I want to focus on some properties of Englishes that are, have been very, very well studied and are considered very good markers of certain regional dialects. And I want to see kind of how these things distribute in y'all's speech. So here's your first question. I want you to think about the names for people. One of them is spelled V-O-N, and it's usually a man's name. The other one is spelled D-A-W-N. And it's usually a woman's name. And I want you to think about whether when you, no right or wrong answers, just when you say these names, K 
Can you tell which one you mean? If so, click one. Or do they sound exactly the same as each other? If so, click two. Right? Oh, I'm sorry. If they sound the same, click one. If they sound different, click two. And if I just misled you, you can vote again. You know, Except I have to open the poll. <laughs> Can't you just open it by telepathy by now? That would be so awesome. There we go. Excellent. Okay. Those two sound the same. Click one. They sound different. Click two. And please click in quickly in the next three, two, one. Oh, we should have more people. Okay. Ninety-two. Interesting. Interesting. So about two-thirds of us click one. By the way, that's I'm in your group. But about one-third of you have a difference. This distinction has a, is so important in the study of regional dialects of English that it has its own name. It's called the low-back merger. And the low-back merger is the thing you have if you clicked one, and the thing you lack if you clicked two. So it's called a merger. A merger is a situation in which sounds that are different from each other at one point in time gradually become the same as each other. So you can see that this is a merger. Um, the opposite thing can also happen, right? You can get a sound that gradually over time becomes two distinct sounds. We'll see an example of that in a moment. This is a merger. It's called the low back merger because it affects this vowel, like in saw, and this vowel, like in hod. And it's a merger that characterizes the speech of people in the western dialect region of the US. We are losing that distinction between those two sounds. So I've actually said two things about it. One, I've said regional varieties differ, right? Some of them have the merger, others of them don't. But I've also said that the merger is a thing that has happened through time. And when we look at uh, varieties of language, what we find is that often a change in the language that's happening over time if you look at it at any given moment, it looks like dialectal variation. So what has been happening with the low back merger in American English is that it started in the West. And it used to be that most varieties of American English had the aw-aw distinction. The merger is gradually over time moving from the west to the east, gobbling up that distinction in American English. So we would predict, give it another, I don't know, 100 years, there's not going to be awe awe in any American English. Maybe. So what we see in any given moment as dialectal variation might well be, in the long run, some sort of change over time. Now I want you to think about these two words, and I'm going to actually open the poll for you. One is spelled B-A-T-H, 
The other spelled T-R-A-P. I want you to think about how you say the vowels in those words. If you have the same vowel sound, click one. If you have different vowel sounds, click two. So the word spelled B-A-T-H and the word spelled T-R-A-P-E. If you have the same vowel sound in both those words, give me one. If you have different vowel sounds, give me two. In the next three, two, one. Okay. Huh? Excellent. We have some twos. Oh, I'm so thrilled. So somebody who's a two, would you be willing to pronounce both of these words for us? Yes. Bath and trap. Bath and trap. I feel there's like a glove something trapped. Oh, okay. So we might be getting some influence on the ah from the pop. Does anybody have ball? Trap. Here, my international students are often of excellent health. Ball. No, no, no. Trap and ball. Well, let me tell you about trap and ball. Do do you recognize that pronunciation? Trap and ball. Where is that going to be characteristic of? British, British English, right. And much of Europe and lots of world Englishes. Let me ask you a related question. There is a word, it's spelled A-U-N-T. It refers to one of your parents' female siblings. <laughs> so you can guess what I'm going to ask. I'll pronounce these guys for you, or so, well, somebody pronounce this one. This is IPA. How do I say this? Aunt. Aunt. Is that person, well, let me give you one more option. Is that person your aunt or your aunt? Or do you use both pronunciations? So if it's your aunt, Consistently, you'll put, give me a one. If it's your aunt, you'll give me a two. If you use both, you'll give me a three. And if you have a sense of like when you use one or the other, that would be super interesting. I see. It's the weird thing because I would say aunt or aunt, meaning sisterly. I would use both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just free variation for some people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Let me close this poll in the next three. Two, one, excellent. Huh. Oh, good, good, good. Okay, well, I'm going to ask you one more question about this before proceeding. Which sounds, which would you consider, if, if either sounds more proper, more educated, more prestigious. I want you to tell me which one. So if you think aunt is the more proper pronunciation, give me a one. If you think aunt is the more proper pronunciation, give me a two. If you think they're both equally proper, give me a three. All right. 
in the next three, two, one. Oh, interesting. I have so few respondents standing up for ant. That's what I predicted. Go ahead, Richard. So there are there's a one at least documented difference in usage that some people have who vary. So some of us vary between aunt and aunt. For me, I vary, and it's a matter of of when I want to sound more proper, I would say aunt. I'm afraid that my colloquial pronunciation aunt sounds bad. And I have this weird theory that we in American English have just decided that the vowel ah is a bad vowel. We start replacing ads with ahs lots of places where the ahs don't belong in order to sound fancier. So for example, my hometown is one of these names you don't know how to pronounce when you see it. It's spelled W-E-N-A-T-C-H-E-E. -E. It is pronounced Wenatchee, Wenatchee, Wenatchee. Seattle newscasters, when they have to read it, they always call us Wenatchee. Yeah, do you think that the pronunciation aunt is older or newer than the pronunciation aunt? Older? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's not older, it's newer. And these things are all um, encompassed by one of the earliest and best documented vowel pronunciation changes in English. This change is called the broad A split. I don't know why they called it the broad A split. They called it a split because it's a split. So these ads we've been talking about, before Middle English, they were all over the place. But by Middle English, we had stabilized having the low front vowel in English, ah. And it counted as the short version of that vowel, ah. So it was ant, it wasn't aunt. Sometime during the shift between Middle English and Early Modern English, near the end of that shift, speakers of a certain set of dialects in Southern England, including London, started splitting some of their ads to odds. So where did they split? It's very interesting. They put odds in a set of words not definable by any kind of meaning or semantics or social, sociological things. This is what they did. If the a occurred before a fa, sa, fa, ns, nt, nsh, or mpl, <coughs> as in sample, they made it off. Everywhere else they left it a. Weird, right? The broad A split was happening at about the same time as English speakers were going around colonializing everywhere else. So different places, depending on when they were colonialized, got it or didn't. We were pretty fully colonialized by this time. 
Um, we are the English that was spoken here, which was minimal, by the way, the English that was spoken here, was already becoming uh, settled. Australia, New Zealand, they got colonized a little bit later. Australian English, New Zealand English have the broad A split like British English does. But the American variety is actually the conservative variety. And what's happening with the broad A split is that the low vowel, add the low front vowel, some of those got scooted back. Hmm. Interesting. We can't predict why these kinds of changes are going to happen or when they're going to happen, but they happen a lot. Okay. Here's another example. Do you guys know this character? Are you? This is before of your time. That's Toonses, the cat who can drive a car. Yeah. Okay. So I want you to think about how you yourself say these words. The word for spelled C-A-R, the word spelled P-A-R-K. And let me open the poll. If you can hear the R sound near the ends of those words, give me a one. If there's no apparent R sound, give me a two. So I'm going to try and, and pronounce these guys the way you might if you're going to vote two. Instead of saying car, I might say car. Instead of park, I might say park. Okay? Right. You guys, this is, this is a property that's really salient in American English dialects, I think, in English dialects generally. So in, ah, oh no, ah, wait, I went backwards. That was horrifying. <laughs> I'm easily startled. Okay, so in the next three, two, one. Huh. There are some of you, yay, who have Pock. Pock the car. Oh. So, One of the most salient phonological distinctions that differentiates varieties of English from each other is whether or not you pronounce your R's when they're in the coda. So speakers of all varieties of American English will pronounce their R's in words like round and ray and hairy. The R's between two vowels, they'll pronounce it. Speakers of some varieties will drop it when it's in a syllable coda. You guys know what that means because you've been in my class. I'm so proud. So the, the varieties like mine, I say car and park. We definitely have our R's in coda. That's a, that's a rhotic dialect versus an R-less dialect. R-less dialects aren't really R-less. They have R's in onset, just not in coda. Let's look at how this property of R-lessness distributes itself. Before I do, though, can you guys think of a variety of English that you believe to be R-less? Boston. Good. Varieties of the Northeastern US. Any others? 
What about British? British received pronunciation. The Queen does not say her R's. So this, I hope this shocks you and makes you delighted. Rhotic dialects. Broadcast standard. So broadcast standard American English is a way to refer to the variety of English that often is taken as sort of the standard. You can tell it is because the newscasters on national news have to learn to talk that way. It's sort of washed of clear regionalisms. Broadcast standard after World War II in American English is a Brodic dialect. Western American English, that's the variety I speak. Many of you guys are speakers of Western American English. British English varieties, but not all of them. So those associated with the southern portion of Great Britain and the eastern portions are Rhotic. So this is the, these are the ones that don't sound like queen. Right? Canadian English, Rhotic. <laughs> New York, there's been a shift. So if you were a rich socialite in New York before World War II, you would have had ours. Is that right? Yes. Right. Broadcast Standard American English before World War II was Arliss. Listen to uh, actors in movies from the 30s and early 40s. They don't have their R's. They sound like, I think of Catherine Hepburn's kind of typical example. The Queen's English. British English spoken in the North. Regional varieties of British English spoken in the North. African-American vernacular English, I had mentioned that one. This is the rapper variety. Arliss. And blue-collar whites post in New York City, post-World War II. So my dad grew up in Brooklyn. And he had an Arliss variety. And he came from a blue-collar um, something happened around World War II that shifted our view of arlessness in American English dialects from something that was perceived as prestigious, not just prestigious, but normal, to something that was started to be seen as maybe stigmatized, but certainly marked, that is, local, as opposed to generic. It's a really interesting fact. All right. One more very important uh, marker of various regional varieties in American English. So I want you to think about the, how you say these words. The one that's the first person singular nominative pronoun or the thing that is in your head that you see with. E-Y-E or that. The word spelled C-H-I-L-D. The word spelled W-H-Y. Think about how you say those guys. And if, I don't know, I, child, why, that, that's a one, I, 
child y. Uh, I can't do it without trying to like say. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, child y versus I, child, Y. I'm hoping we have some, some ones in the room. So click in in the next three, two, one. Oh, I cut off the edge of my rooster. <laughs> Do you guys remember the name of that character? Foghorn Leghorn, I couldn't think of it. Foghorn Leghorn would answer with a? One. Right. Right. Okay. Yep. Aw. There are some ones. Good. Welcome. What variety of English, what regional dialect is, is that associated with? Southern, right? Okay. So in, in reality, there's a bajillion southerns in American English. But one characteristic that goes all across all the Southerns in American English is this phenomenon called monophonization. Monophonization. Well, so that's a scary word, right? But if you know the word diphthong and what it means, you can figure out what the word monophthong means, right? So diphthong is a vowel that moves between two positions when you say it. It's got two places of articulation. A monophthong doesn't move, has one place of articulation. Ah. So, Southern American English monophthongizes the I especially. Um, and I will, I wrote these, my phonetic transcription for these has the little colon after the A in the monophthongized versions. Do you remember what colon means? Make it long. And that's something that these speakers do. They change the diphthong in a into a monophthong, but they make it last longer than a, just a regular awe would last. But it doesn't make it a uh, minimal period. It's short, right? It doesn't make a minimal Well, it would be interesting to find out. So what the lengthening does is it preserves a contrast between the things that have I and the things that just have awe, like hot. So it would be interesting, so height and hot. Hot, hot. Should, for a speaker of this variety, would those sound different from each other? Would they be a minimal pair for length? That would be super interesting to find out. Right, so, so height, like how tall you are, versus hot. Those should, those might converge in this variety, except that the length distinction might help speakers retain a difference between words. So, that was monophthongization. One last question for you guys, which will identify a super important regional dialect that's emerging in the last 50 years of American English, and it's this. So I want you to think about how you say the word spelled D-A-D, your father, and the word for the things you're wearing on the south of the border region. <laughs> and I'm going to pronounce them each of these ways. See if you have either of these pronunciations. So you might say 
dad and pants that you wore. You might say, anyone want to try it? Yes. Dad and pants. <laughs> give me it too. If you got some other pronunciation that I didn't mention, give me it too. So, dad and pants. One. Yeah, and pants. Two. <laughs> Anything else? Three. And the next three. Two. One. So curious. Oh, come on. Some of you must have Dad. And P no? Oh. Do you recognize that pronunciation at all? Do you associate it with any particular place? Richard? Valley Girl, California. Valley Girl, California, really? Long Island. <laughs> Long Island? So I did my undergraduate in Chicago. And in Chicago, we get dad and pants. There's lots of different ways that this act can go. Um, it's an unstable vowel in American English. But what you've just seen is the opposite of monophthongization. Diphthongization. <laughs> so you can get a vowel that started as a steady state and then gets moved about into a diphthong. There is a variety that is emerging since the 1950s primarily among white blue-collar residents of the so-called Rust Belt cities of the American West, the American Midwest. So Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit. There's a very interesting set of processes. This change is actually step one of a process that is affecting a whole bunch of vowels in a very orderly fashion in these varieties. And it is showing signs of growth. That is, when it was first detected in the upper Midwest in the 1950s, it was highly local. And it is spreading. So it is distinctly possible that in another 50 or 100 years, all of our vowels will be different. We'll all be saying pants and dead and a number of other vowels, which I should tell you about at the beginning of the hour on Wednesday, because we don't. 